0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the PolicyViz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabisch. And on this week's episode, I get to chat with my good friend, Rob Simmon, who currently works at Planet out in California. Rob is a data visualization expert. He's a designer. He makes maps. He makes data viz. He works with satellites. He does a lot of work with color and accessibility. He basically does all the stuff that we all need to do and think about, and he gets to create cool visualizations about the world um, that is, you know, The stuff that we all like to look at, really. Um, He's also the famous creator of the blue marble image that was on your first iPhone. Um, Rob and I chatted a few weeks ago, so you'll notice that when we start this conversation, we're talking about the caps, uh, the Washington Capitals, that is, as we're getting into hockey season. Of course, Had we done this interview a couple of days ago, we would have been talking about the Washington Nationals World Series run. So you'll hear a a little bit of that, Uh, but then we get into all the good stuff that Rob works on um, and all the good tools and techniques and strategies that he uses, Um, and I've linked to those in the show notes uh, at the bottom of the episode page, so I hope you'll be able to use them. Um, And if you'd like to support the show, please consider sharing this episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to financially support the show, go over to my Patreon page, I've added a new uh, tier uh, that you can become a regular supporter of the show with some new goodies. So if you'd like to check that out, please uh, click the link on the episode page and you can check that out. So anyways, on to my chat with Rob Simmon from Planet. Here we go. Hey Rob, how's it going? Hi John, it's going okay. Yeah, how's, uh, how's sunny Northern California?
1: Uh, it is not sunny at all right now. It is oh, really? a fairly typical, <laughs> somewhat cloudy morning. Uh, I I live in the flatlands now, so we get a marine layer uh, uh, right. pretty regularly. I'd say like
0: five days out of seven. That morning fog that rolls over?
1: Yeah, it's, it's yeah. not fog. It's more like
0: low-level right. cloud deck, um, right. and it'll probably burn off by noon or so and, and start getting warm. Okay, so before we talk about your satellite imagery work and the data viz work, Um, let's talk about hockey. So uh, when this airs, we'll probably already be a couple weeks into the, into the season, but we're nearing. So here's my first, and this might be the most important question I have for you today is, are you still a Caps fan or have you flipped now to like the Sharks or some other West coast team? I am always going to be a Caps fan. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's what I like to hear. Like, like this right. is
1: never going to change. <laughs> okay, I, right. I mean, like, I've tried to adopt the Sharks as a solid right. second team. Right, okay, okay. And even that's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I am still all Caps all the time. You know, nice. last spring, I was watching that second overtime. Yeah. It, it was obvious that one team had played an extra quarter season yes. the year yeah, before, and the it. other team hadn't. Yeah. You know, yep. you could just
0: tell like you just tell. hurricanes were faster. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's tiring when you're doing that for that many months in a row. Yep.
1: And yep. then like a fraction of a second after the goal was scored, I slammed my laptop closed. <laughs> and That was it. No hockey for like three or four weeks. <laughs> and then kind of slowly like check Japer's rink like, once a week. Yep. And then every couple times a week. And that's yeah, a couple times a day. You know, right. what's going you know, on? Training camp.
0: It. Yep. It's all it's all lit. it's all good. It's all good. So now we're now we're good. Um what are our aspirations this year?
1: Oh, um just to hold off that inevitable falling off the cliff at least one more year. Oh <laughs> no. no. <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. Just, uh, I'm a just fan. So like I know yeah, they're yeah. coming. You're yeah, you're just waiting for it. Yeah. And and it's just like, is it this year? Um right. is
0: is Backstrom going to be re-signed or you I'm know, understand. When does Father Time catch up with Ovi? Like at some point. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's good. I mean, I still have optimism with this team. That's that's the thing. I don't root for all the DC teams, but certainly in DC, it's like you just kind of wait for the fall and like there's that sense of dread. I don't really have that with the Cap so much until we get to the playoffs. And yeah. now that we've broken through. I kind of feel like you know we've got we've got that extra months of rest, so maybe again this year, you know. I thought that was going to be the case. Like they win the cup. I'm chill. I can just enjoy it. And that's more <laughs> that's or less true
1: for the regular season. Right, but when the playoffs when come. We're talking playoffs and it's just like stress level is completely through the roof. And it's <laughs> back just, to
0: it. Yeah. Yep. So I thought I, I would grow up some and and it didn't. No, happen. no, no. Sports fans never grow up. That's, no. that's the beauty of being, being a fan. There you go. All right. So we've wasted uh, a few minutes of people's time who do not care about hockey, but um, that's fine. They're they're just waiting to get to the good stuff. So um, let's get to the good stuff. Um, sure. how's, how's work? Work is good. Um, you know, Planet continues to mature as a company.
1: Uh, we yep. continue to launch more satellites and sort of evolve our product. And how many satellites do you guys have now? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, we have 15 high res satellites and we have about a hundred operating of the smaller, uh, medium resolution satellites that provide the daily global coverage. Yeah. And so it's this mixture of constellations. Um, and then another, uh, five satellites that kind of continue a record that goes back to 2009. Uh, but those are Mm -hmm. reaching the end of their lifetime.
0: Right. And when those reach the end of their lifetime, they come crashing back into, uh, into earth or do they just sort of continue floating? Forever?
1: So they're small enough that they will probably continue orbiting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is you put them into uh, a situation where they will
0: deorbit as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, and then they'll burn up on reentry. Right. The reentry. Um, do you maybe want to tell folks a little bit about your, your day to day? I'm sure folks are familiar with the work that you do and the, and the satellite images that you put out and, you know, your Twitter feed, which is amazing. But yeah, maybe talk about the day-to-day and what it is you do at Planet and the data viz work that you do on top of the the images.
1: Sure. So so I guess I'll I'll give a little bit of an intro to Planet. Um, We are a a satellite and analytics company based in San Francisco. Uh, We design, build our own satellites, um, hand them off for somebody else to launch. And then as soon as they are released into orbit, uh, take control... Start commissioning them, and then download, process, and distribute the data. And we are also on top of you know what could be considered to be the the base data. We're also building analytics, and so it's not just imagery, it's not just multispectral data from from different bands, uh, including you know infrared. Um, it's also this second layer of information like roads and buildings and ship detection are the, the three things that we've launched commercially mm-hmm. so far. And so my role there is data viz. Um, right. i working with my um, colleague, Leanne Abraham, um, and we take the information and then try to communicate it in a way that's as clear as possible. So the, the basic role of, of data viz. Um take numbers and turn it into pictures, uh, but really with this emphasis of like how do you communicate the information behind it. And right. so some of that is purely taking the imagery and then processing it into something that looks like what a person would think the Earth's surface looks like. So it's not like an exact photograph um, because you have things like atmospheric distortion. Uh, and and a little bit of color shifting from that. So what you do is you kind of try to make it some blend of what it really looks like to an astronaut from orbit versus our own perception and experience of seeing things from ground level. Right. Um, And so that's important just so people can look at these images and then have a good chance of being able to read them.
0: So what does that entail to do that? So you take that image that comes in and it, it doesn't look familiar to, you know, me, for example, what do you have to physically do to the data or to the image to make it look like something that I would recognize? Sure. So um,
1: the data that's coming down is data. Um, So it's one of those things where there's actually a a very fuzzy line between like, what's a picture and what's a data set. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are calibrated data sets. So we know how much energy essentially is reaching the sensor from the top of the atmosphere. Um, and that's coming down as a, a linear measurement. Uh, our senses, including our vision, tend to be very nonlinear. Um, so sort of the first step is to uh, non-linearize that. Uh, in sort of semi-technical terms, you can say it's applying a gamma correction. Uh, it's the same thing mm-hmm. if you you pull something in in Photoshop and like adjust that gamma curve. And okay. so basically you see bigger differences in darker areas of an image and smaller differences in brighter areas of an image. And so you're, you're accounting for that difference. Um, and then the slices of spectrum that the satellite is picking up on are different than sort of these broad swaths of spectrum that our eyes see. Um, and so you're trying to adjust the red, green, and blue components of that to match um, sort of a more natural response, and then taking out some of the atmosphere. So if you notice, I mean, everybody knows this, you look up, the sky's blue, um, that same blueness is actually captured by satellites. um, And it really interferes with sort of the fidelity of the image, again, from that perspective of what do things look like to us on the ground? Yeah. And so adjusting for that. And, And in some ways that's actually the most challenging because the atmosphere is very inconsistent. And so if I'm doing the desert over Riyadh, you know, that's a completely different problem than Hawaii or like a smoky image over the Amazon rainforest or Indonesian Borneo.
0: And presumably when I'm looking at an image that you have worked on versus an image that... Some other company or government agency or NASA has worked on. It's completely feasible, right, that those two images would look different based on the work that you and whoever your counterpart is is doing on those, right?
1: Yeah. So there's really kind of a couple different approaches. So first of all, everybody, NASA, Maxar, Planet, um, we're all generating far too much imagery, like far, 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 several orders <laughs> of magnitude too much imagery for like a person to process it, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's automated techniques of doing this work. Um, and so basically, it's the same thing that's happening when you're you're taking a camera, and the camera is basically making a whole bunch of decisions. Uh, this is a digital camera, obviously, about sort of how to process the image. Like you know, you can like pick different white balances and things like that. But in most cases, you know, that's all happening automatically, and you can do that. Um, yeah. Or you can take the approach of we're imaging the earth from space, and then we should try to process everything consistently. And so one approach sort of gives you a better image. Each individual image stands on its own uh, with a, a handful of exceptions. And the other approach gives you consistency so that you can stack a whole bunch of images in time, and then they're all going to look smooth and, and look even. Right. So when a person comes in, you kind of can get the best of both worlds. Um, at the expense of the time and effort and expertise. And my dog hears me talking <laughs> and is getting very upset. So she's coming in and squeaking. Um so I'm gonna pet her and hope that she stays All quiet. Right. Um anyhow, uh let me restart a little bit of that. Um yeah. okay, so if you Obviously, you can't have a person processing all of this imagery. Uh, And so you have the two different automated approaches, but sometimes for like very deep analysis, for marketing purposes, for getting things out to journalists, you might want to have somebody do a hand-touch job. And so the advantage of that is that you can really optimize the image to show a particular feature, a particular area. And you can get a series of images that are both um, show what you want to show and are consistent over time or over space. And and that's really, really difficult to do in an automated way. Uh, You can do it a little bit. You know, we have a mosaicing team. And obviously, if you look at Google Maps, you know, that's almost entirely an automated process. Yeah. Uh, But if you really zoom into certain areas, you can see where that starts to break down. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... This problem of turning a very big, very heterogeneous earth into a consistent look and feel, especially when you throw in the time dimension, is is really hard to fix. Um, And so I work both on that hand-touched and then also work with the software engineers to try to figure out the best ways to do this on a consistent basis.
0: You know, it, it's interesting the way you describe what you do and the fact that you are, you know, you sort of start by saying, um, uh, you know, I do data visualization. And I think I think probably a lot of people, when they think about making maps as someone who visualizes data, they think about, you know, more of like a choropleth map, right? You know, they're adding dots or circles or squares or lines or something to a map. Maybe it's just me, but I th- you have a totally different take on or I guess tasks to do with maps. And I think a lot of us do. Um, when you're visualizing data, it's different than a lot of us are doing it, right? A lot of us are putting data on some sort of map, whereas for you, the map is the data. That's a fair way of describing it, at least for the majority
1: of my work. I, yeah. I mean, I certainly do uh, a certain amount of what would be considered more traditional or pure data visualization, mm-hmm. uh, both cartography, maps, thematic maps, um, graphs and charts types of things. Yeah. Um, And in fact, what I'm most interested in is blending things like that together. So take the satellite imagery and then how do you make it more like what we think of as a traditional map? Right. Um, So I I kind of have this discussion with my colleague Leanne all the time, um, who is professionally trained as a cartographer Mm-hmm. Um, where I will say, I want to make the the satellite image more mappy. And she'll be like, well, it is a map. So you're not making it more mappy. And what I mean by that is that I'm trying to sort of abstract and distill the information in the image to convey a certain message or, or to communicate a, an important point. Right. Um, if you look at just a, a satellite image, you know, a lot of the time, basically it just has far too much information. So, you know, if if you're trying to show a road network, you know, and you also have buildings and trees and rivers and reservoirs and clouds and contrails and all the other stuff that comes with taking a, a straight up image. So if if you start with a satellite imagery image, there's just all of this extra information and you need to sort of pull out the relevant details. Um, or remove the extraneous details. And so that becomes super important when we're trying to do things like show off planet's analytic products. Um, And so we have these road networks, we have these building detections. So how do you sort of display the context that's around them? Because you might be looking at just pure roads and buildings and without knowing things like where are the hills, where's the water. where are the parks? You know, that this information really isn't particularly useful or informative. And so mm-hmm. it's it's that blending of a derived or extracted data set with the more photo-like data. And, right. you know, how do you strike that balance? Again, how do you automate it? You know, how do you make sure that you're doing this globally? Um, because it's a really different problem if you're doing it in DC um, or if you're doing it in Cairo. Uh, yeah. just because the surrounding landscape is so different. So different, um, yeah. And, and you, how do you try to convey the essence of a place through just visually? Um, right. And so that that's another thing that sort of has been preoccupying me
0: lately. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I also wonder when you are working either with colleagues at Planet or, or other folks when you're working with them, how they view the work that you do. I mean, I know a lot of... Uh, people who are in let's say closer to the data side of data visualization maybe they're not making custom infographics and, and they're not designers by by training right they're data scientists or or what have you by training so i wonder when you're talking to either you know folks that you work with or or other people or whoever do they view this work as design do they view it as data visualization how do they approach it i have this thing when i hear people say can you make this graph pop or, you know, make it look better, make it look pretty that like, I feel like a designer loses their wings every time they hear something like that. So but like, how do, how do people <laughs> like, how do people view your job in this role? Like, is it design? Is it data? Like, how do they approach you and, and sort of communicate what they want you to do? I, I think it's really mixed. Um, certainly, you know,
1: there are times when people approach it as what I'm doing is a purely aesthetic task. Like yeah. make it, Rob makes the, the images look pretty. Yeah. Um, and that's true. But in my opinion, that's really only a small amount of the story. Um, really what I'm trying to do is improve the communication. So, yeah. you know, I am working for Planet. Um, before that, I worked for NASA. And my role was to make sure that the people with a message The scientists, the engineers, the communications team, that we convey that message in the best way possible. Mm. And the decisions I'm making are trying to make sure that that comes through loud and clear. And part of that is to make things, you know, quote unquote, look good. Um, But we also know that a lot of the rules in data visualization or, or guidelines. you know, It's very hard to say that there are hard and fast rules in data, yeah. there's obviously a handful, but we follow these guidelines to make good design decisions. And they kind of have a side effect of making things look more aesthetically pleasing, but mm-hmm. it's not the main goal. So yeah. like a lot of the reduction of extraneous information, a lot of good choices and colors. Yes, they have an aesthetic impact, but they also focus you in on the data they don't distract you. They make sure that you can differentiate values from one another and that your perception of
0: that difference is accurate. And so you're, you're, that's really my main goal. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it, right? It's, it is an aesthetic approach or aesthetic decision, but you're coming at it from a different perspective. It's not coming at it from, let's make this thing look pretty. Let's make this thing better. And that's how we get to sort of this end goal, um, where where others would view it as an aesthetic change, but that's really not how we approached it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a um, quote that I have seen floating around every once in a while. That's uh, I'm a designer, not an effing screwdriver. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not just doing this one kind of simple thing. As a field, we're bringing a yeah. wealth of experience, a wealth of knowledge, um, a lot of it based on research to try to improve
0: the transmission of information from one person to another. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, What else do you get to create when you're there? I obviously wait for your tweets to come out with cool satellite imagery, but like what other stuff do you get to create with all the, I mean, you're getting a lot of data that's pouring through. So do you get to create other things and, and toy around a little bit? So yeah, definitely.
1: Um, I've been talking about these analytics products. Uh, and so like one thing that's been coming out more and more recently is examples of these and, and sort of, how do you convey the fact that we can now run, uh, roads and building detection across the whole world. Um, and, and again, I sort of touched on this, that sometimes it's difficult to show the same information, uh, within completely different environments um Mm -hmm. and so like you know trying to optimize that process so you know we take our data set um we take the abstractions on top of that um and so you have a road layer you have a building layer you have our imagery and then what else can we pull in so can we pull in a digital elevation model so basically a terrain map um with elevation described as a number you know meters or, or feet or whatever. Um, And if we add some hill shading, you know, does that provide context? Well, in North Korea, that's a great technique. Um, Mm. Again, in in Cairo, which is pretty flat, uh, it doesn't work so well, you know, or or anywhere where there's little terrain like the American Midwest. Um, You you don't really get much out of that. So, okay, so we take that and we blend it in. Um, Do we bring in information from like open street maps and start plotting in riverways and coastlines and municipal boundaries and things like that. And so like how much extra information do you need to use to make your core information make sense? Um, And so this is in, in many ways, this is like a conventional cartographic challenge. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, I get to work with a team that has both some great engineering capabilities, um, some great aesthetic choices um, and then uh, you know, a formal training in cartography, and I've I've learned a ton from Leanne, which is awesome, and sort of like, you know, just how do you evolve this over time to to both use for marketing and commercial and just like sort of advertising purposes, like, hey, this is what we're doing and isn't it cool? But then, you know, when we start to build the tools that allow our everyday users to work with this data, you know, how do you make sure that that tool is giving people the best experience
0: possible? Yeah, right, 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 right. Let me ask one more question. What's the hardest terrain or area of the world that you've had to work with? Like what's the most difficult thing you've had to try to address or make? Uh, The glib answer is anywhere I haven't been.
1: (laughs) It's definitely like...
0: So Planet just needs to send you more places. (laughs) That's right.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, Right. so, So I find it much, much easier to work with a data set of places that I'm familiar with. Mm. So like Bay area. Yeah, I can nail that.
0: Right. Um, you know, I DC. I, got DC. Yeah. DC. Right. And like, you know, just
1: places I visited, places I'm familiar with. Um, <laughs> and <laughs>
0: <laughs> Your dog agrees. Yeah.
1: She does. She's just, yeah. she's frustrated because the, the, under the bed is kind of filled with boxes, and I'm talking, and nobody else is home. Nobody's in the room, wondered, right? And <laughs> her brother probably stole all her breakfast, so she's just <laughs> um, So right, any place I've been, or any place that has like kind of clearly familiar landmarks in it so like if uh, there's a snow or a cloud you know mm-hmm. that's a really good starting point mm-hmm. um she used to like snow she's complaining now bye bye <laughs> come here okay i bribed her with some chicken
0: there <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll see how that works yeah um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so um so challenging areas to challenging image. areas yeah um okay so so easiest are places i've been um next easiest are places that look like places i've been so like pretty much any temperate climate with you know hills and woods looks like mm-hmm. the northeast sure i can do that um i think the most challenging are deserts and mm-hmm. that tends to be because they're very low contrast uh, and they don't necessarily have any black or any dark areas at all in the image. And so then you end up with this really interesting um, challenge of you want to make an image that has contrast in it so that it's appealing so that you can actually Mm -hmm. see features, but you don't want to make it look like something it's not. Um, And that actually... I find a lot of the time, if you create an automated algorithm to do color correction, you end up with blue deserts. Um, And that's just because Uh. the algorithm wants there to be something white, um, and the image itself is actually very red or very brown. And so it's like adding in blue to try to make it whiter. Uh, And you end up with this kind of alien, possibly snow-covered look. And if you throw in, like, some human habitation, some vegetation, you know, logically, it seems like that would make it easier. But I think the character of the vegetation is very different from what we consider, like, you know, D.C. summer deciduous trees, which are, like, super rich green, super Mm -hmm. dark. Um, Middle Eastern vegetation, I think, is much more like chaparral in... You know the the California coastal California hills, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's kind of it's lighter, it's browner, um, and like trying to balance that plus the surface desert itself um, without having any like real strong landmarks or features to to work against mm-hmm. makes it a little bit challenging. Um, and so, and also, I've never been to the Middle East, um, right. so like I don't really know what my experience would be being on the ground there. Um, right. and, and so that's why I think I find it difficult.
0: Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see, like the, the Rob Simmon evaluation, right? It would be interesting to make you do some maps now of Cairo and then send you to Cairo for a couple of weeks and then uh, get you some new imagery of Cairo and make you redo those and see, if, see how different they look.
1: Yeah, I I endorse this project, John. I
0: would love to do that. So we have a goal. We're going to have a Kickstarter and we're going to get Rob to (laughs) Cairo. There we go. uh, So the next uh, cartography conference that comes up, uh, please uh, locate somewhere in the Middle East and we're going to have a a Rob Simmons evaluation. It's going to be great. That sounds like fun. Uh, One last thing before we go. Uh, I wanted to ask about tools uh, because I'm guessing there's not a lot of Tableau Uh, certainly not Excel being used uh, in your day-to-day. So you mentioned Photoshop a bit, but um, what is the suite of tools that you're using to do your day-to-day?
1: Sure. So I end up using sort of a blend of commercial tools, and that is commercial photo editing, um, commercial GIS, um, and then non-commercial, both graphical user interface and command line tools. Mm. And so I think I spend most of my time in Photoshop, and a plugin called Geographic Imager. And what that does is it allows Photoshop to maintain the geographic information that's in a satellite image or a map. Um, And so like if you're familiar with a geotiff, it can read geotiffs, it can stitch geotiffs, it can reproject geotiffs. And then when you save an image, it preserves all of that information. And so that means when I work on an image and I export it, you can then bring it in to some other type of map making software and overlay things, or you can compare it to data, um, or do analysis, um, oh, without destroying all of that information. Right.
0: So um, what, what do, you, what do you have? And what do you have to do about the, I assume that like some of the file sizes here can get pretty huge.
1: Uh, that just is requires <laughs> a little bit of patience. Um, <laughs> it requires a lot of Ram and doing things like, Getting a SSD drives specifically to act as a cache. Oh, yeah. um, I had some interesting times a week or so ago where I was working with an image that was large enough that it was over the four gigabyte TIFF file size, um, and so I had to sort of jump through some hoops to manage to save the the image that I wanted and to keep all the information in the geotiff. Wow, um, right. And and so one thing to remember with satellite imagery is, generally speaking, it starts at sixteen bits per channel, not eight bits per channel. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, it's twice as big as a normal image for the same dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then oftentimes there is additional channels, so you have red, green, blue, and near infrared. So that's another you know twenty-five percent file size. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So you sort of learn the tricks um, and try to make as much of your process repeatable so that if something does go wrong, that you can then go back and recover it without starting over from scratch. Uh, Although Hmm. I have had to do that sometimes. Um, But yeah, generally speaking, fast computers, um, a lot of RAM, a lot of disk space. We've actually been using Google Drive a lot lately, which has some magic caching, um, which seems to be working pretty well for getting files between different people. Hmm. Um, so, so that's definitely part of the challenge. Um, and then compression, like make sure you're saving the images uh, with what's called LZW compression, which is more efficient at the expense of slower to save, uh, but can help you know, alleviate some of these problems later on. Right. Um, then let's see. I also oftentimes use Illustrator uh, with mm-hmm. another um, Avenza plugin called Map Publisher, and it's basically the same thing for Illustrator that Geographic Imagery is for Photoshop, and so it allows you to bring in vector data sets, um, so shape files, GeoJSON, things like that, and then combine them with the imagery itself uh, and keep all of the alignment, all of the scale, all of that stuff. Um, and you can crop and you can select based on attributes so I can like select all the roads or select all the rivers and things like that. Um, yeah. So it, it's basically a, a mini GIS inside Illustrator uh, and for like producing high-end output, uh, it's fantastic. Then mm-hmm. on sort of the free and open source side, I use QGIS, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a at this point pretty polished, um, certainly extremely powerful. Um tool for doing a lot of what we've been talking about, um, but within uh, the context of free software. And then that's built on something called GDAL, which is a library for working with geographic data. And so I wrote a series of posts um, called A Gentle Introduction to GDAL, which basically walks through why you'd want to use it, how you use it to perform basic tasks, uh, and then give some examples and, and sample data sets and things like that. Cool. Um, which is something that I I still have ideas for additional posts and really need to follow up on those. Nice. Um, so stay tuned. I guess I'm committing myself. I'll, I'll link to the ones that you have. That's to, that's to a certain great. extent. Um, yeah. And then I'll, I've also written about processing satellite data in Photoshop and in QGS, so that you you don't have to have the outweigh because um, some of these tools can be pretty expensive, uh, especially to maintain them.
0: Yeah. Right. I'm sure. I'm sure. Cool. Um, great man well i'll put this on the site and um i'll look forward to seeing some more of your uh of cool images and uh hopefully maybe we'll be even uh hook up this uh next few months so we can go see a game together uh, that'd be great all right uh, they do cool. play the sharks every once in they a they do yeah they do they do i was i was looking a few days ago so i'll have to time my trip to california appropriately <laughs> sounds like a good plan thanks rob this was fun all right you're welcome bye Thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And I hope you'll keep tuning in every other week to the show. I've got some great episodes coming up for the rest of 2019. And if you'd like to support the show, please, again, consider sharing it uh, with your networks. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast provider. And if you'd like to financially support the show, please head over to my Patreon page where I now have a new tier, including one where you can get your own Set of data visualization postcards just for a low monthly donation to help support the show. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening.